this practice that we call Zen has quite a history. You remember probably from reading it somewhere or you have heard it from some talk, maybe even here, that the practice of Zen by the own accounts of this tradition goes back to the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who turned into the Buddha, the awakened one, more than 2,500 years ago. And uh, he was the founder of what is called Buddhism today. So the meditation practice in which Buddha himself immersed is the same kind of practice that we do here. The teachings that were written down based upon his talks, based upon uh, history and following generations of teachers in this Buddhist tradition are like the scriptures of Buddhism. They are important, yes, they are important, but under no circumstances can we substitute reading those scriptures with having engaged in the same practice and being engaged in the same practice that Siddhartha engaged himself to go to the bottom and to get to the bottom of what it means to be a human being. So please don't think that this is a judgment on scripture or the study of scripture. It is not. It's important to have these written teachings. It's important to have people who study and who interpret the written teachings. But it is also important that we understand we cannot penetrate to the core of what these teachings mean and where they came from without having truly engaged in the same practice that the Buddha himself undertook, the investigation of the self. So when I say it is quite something how Zen made it here, let's uh, remember that from India it was Bodhidharma who brought it to China, taking a sea route. So over the Chinese sea from India came Zen into China. And there developed amongst a plethora of other Buddhist schools that had been there much longer. And then from China, it made its way again over a large body of water to Japan. And on this path of Zen, each culture added its elements, influenced the form that Zen practice takes. In China, it was quite, it became quite monastic, which was further changed when it came to Japan, where it became even stricter. 
looking back of the tales of the old, the ancient ancestors of Zen in China, there are many, many stories of very intense practice of them practicing alone often keeping themselves awake and stabbing themselves in the thigh to stay awake and not fall asleep during meditation. Sitting outside all night and in the morning looking like a cactus where the mosquitoes full of blood are just falling off like ripe fruit. And Zen made it from Japan to America. A few Japanese teachers came over here in the last century. And American Zen was born. Now, for us in this first generation or second generation, but certainly in the ages of the pioneers of American Zen practice, we have a few questions that we have to ask ourselves. And we have also to very critically and open-mindedly look at how our practice here in America is being influenced by the pre-existing, predominant culture that we find here. In China, many elements of Confucianism and also some Taoist features found their way into the teaching of Zen. In Japan, some Japanese predispositions to understanding impermanence, the wabi-sabi type of feeling of the impermanence and the little bit of sting that comes with that that is somewhat enjoyable also made it into Japanese culture, but also we find it in the Zen ideal of what a master is. And here in America we have to see what does it mean and what is it that we can safely remove or let, let be, leave behind as having been added by a different culture and not being contemporary or suited for where Zen is here and now, while not falling into a trap or the danger to really give something up that is essential to the practice of Zen. So you can imagine that it's quite, quite a challenge because you will find opinions on both sides. Some people would like to transplant the Zen as it came from the monastery in Japan right here and continue the same way. Others call for letting go of all the formality and there are some traditions here in America that came from Zen that completely have given up on the traditional forms. Tony Packer and her Sangha in Springwater, New York, is very, very open. Tony, of course, is no longer with us, 
But there, for example, you sit when you want to sit. There is nobody telling you not to move or do this or that. The only thing that everybody commits to besides respecting each other's practice is to participate in the communal preparation of meals. So when you go there for a retreat, you will be assigned at a specific day to do a specific task. Everything is fully prepared, instructions what to do. There's absolutely no need to talk. So that is some way of doing it. There are other ways of doing it where we have to, where we can find, we don't have to, but we can find a middle way between what is there in the form that we bring along and what is there in terms of, let's say, monasticism that is not appropriate for the kind of Zen practitioners we find here. Truth told, there are just, how many monks are there who can live full-time in a monastery? How many monasteries are there that can full-time teach those monks and support them? Here in America, very, very few. Even in Japan, the number of young people who come, who undertake the path of a traditional Zen monastic training is very, very small. Monks halls, sodos, or even training halls, senmon dojos, that used to have 50, 60 monks training at a time. Some of them have five, six, or even four monks training there. And here in America, we have to look at what kind of Zen practice do we offer and where do we accommodate the needs of society, the needs of the times, the needs of those who previously would be called householders. There was a distinction between the householder who would be keeping a household and having a family or not, but living his or her own life. And those who have left home, the home leavers, those who are ordained and became part of the ordained Sangha. Is that a model that works here in the same way that it worked in the East? Probably not. If we think about Mahayana Buddhism, then we know that true Mahayana, the great vehicle that includes everybody who wants to engage in the study and the practice of the way of the Buddha, that already tells us that there should be no inherent distinction between a householder and an ordained person in terms of what the depth of the practice is that we offer, what the way to get to that practice is. If it were only monastic practice, we would really, really severely limit access to those who have families, who have a life outside of the monastery. 
And ultimately, when somebody emerges from the monastic practice, they have to return into that realm where there are not monks, not nuns, but real people with real jobs, with apparently real problems and real joy and real, real sadness that one has to deal with. So when Zen came here, it also met the Western idea of psychology. Therapists talk about Buddhism a lot nowadays. The dreaded M word, mindfulness, that was extracted from Buddhist teachings is all over the map. And it's nice to use Buddhist ideas and strip them from what is perceived here as religious background. But one of the really, really important things that we have to keep in mind is that deep Buddhist practice is not therapy. Therapy in the Western sense is always concerned with the individual, with the self. Even the word self-improvement is a word that is very well known. And for some time in the beginning, before there were real sections in the bookstore that said Buddhism and spirituality, there was a shelf for self-improvement. Zen practice is neither therapy nor is it self-improvement. Because in the end, what the Buddha and Zen practice wants to teach us is that there is truly nothing to be improved on. What is there to be understood, to be realized, to be awakened to, or to awake yourself to, is the fact that that self, which again is the center of the concern of therapists, that self is not what we believe it is. No self is what Buddhism teaches us. Self, like all other phenomena, is empty. Empty not in the sense that it is void, but it is lacking like everything lacks any kind of inherent constancy, inherent selfhood. Individuality is an idea. An idea that is stubbornly fixed in our consciousness. Zen practice is not there to make that idea be perceived in a different way in a more benevolent way by accepting the self that we have and feeling better about it. No. Zen practice is about seeing through that self and being able to get to the point through the experience of the dropping of that self that it is something that arises 
and disappears all the time. It is not a thing and it is certainly not who or what we are. So whatever we strip from the traditional practice, this is one of the things that we cannot ever take away because it would be abandoning what this kind of practice is about. Investigating the nature of the self, seeing through the illusory self that as an entity of some complexity does a very good job of perpetuating the idea that it itself is something. Zazen, following our breath, and then later koan practice, teaches us to look at that self and to see through that illusion or even delusion that the self tells us it is a thing. Now, of course, there's always a difficulty with all of this. And that is that this is not that you will learn that the self, even though it is empty, that it is not there. Of course it is there. If it were not there, you couldn't hear what I'm saying. You could not understand the words. You would not remember who you are, who is your father and your mother, who your fellow human beings are, where you live, what time it is, and all of that. The self, of course, is real. But what we learn is to see it for what it is. Temporary, ever-changing, non-fixated, and by being able to live that way, a never-before-known freshness and authenticity of the experience of every moment of our lives comes as the prize of being able to see through and then to actualize that realization in all facets of our lives. Householder, home lever, man, woman, it doesn't matter. At that point, one becomes as the ancients, our ancestors in Zen tells us, told us that one becomes the master of one's own destiny and having full rule over heaven and earth. It is an awesome responsibility to undertake such an investigation and it is a daunting task 
So all of you who came here to even spend a few minutes sniffing at this task, it means a great deal to those who make this kind of teaching and practice the center of their lives. Thank you. Keep on. Don't let up.